Good morning. If this is your first time at Abide, let me welcome you. We are so excited to have you here. If this is not your first time at Abide, and you have been here before, we want to welcome you too. We are excited to have you here. This morning, I'd like to tell you about, I'd like to start by telling you about my husband's family. He was a bit famous in my hometown. When he was in the third grade, he remembers going with his family, thank you, uptown, to go shop for furniture. And while his parents were in the process of making a sale, my father-in-law, who had a bleeding ulcer, began to experience an attack. And so he had to excuse himself and go outside. Well, while he was there, he began to hemorrhage and pass out. And so an ambulance had to be called, and so he and his mother took off for the hospital. Meanwhile, the kids, the three little kids, had been playing in some back room. They were thinking that it just takes really long to get furniture. And someone came back to them and said, now we don't want you to worry. Your dad's gonna be fine, but your parents have just gone to the hospital. Your grandparents are coming to get you. Well, they waited for a while and pretty soon Grandma Geisler showed up because she lived the closest. But she wanted to go to the hospital. So plans had been made for the other grandparents to come and pick them up. Now, they were 45 minutes away. So they waited for those parents, grandparents to show up. The plan was for those grandparents to take the three kids to their house, put them in bed, and just stay with them there until the parents returned. Well, it took a while for the grandparents to show up, but when they finally did, they took the kids, started, and started home. Grandma Humphrey explains that by the time she got home, she looked back, and all three kids were sleeping, and it was raining. And so it was raining, and she thought, I don't want to drag them all out of the, out of the car and into the house. So she decided, I'm just going to run in, grab a few things, get the PJs, and take them back to my house. So she did that. And then they all proceeded to make the 45-minute drive to her house. Fifteen minutes after they left the neighborhood, the house exploded. Like something out of a movie. My husband's childhood home was blown to smithereens. The story goes that their pastor, who had been on the way to see them in the hospital, learned of the explosion. And so he now had the job of telling my in-laws, your house has just blown up, and we do not know where the children are. This was back in the olden days, before cell phones. <laughs> I can remember being a little girl at my grandmother's house, and she and my mother were looking at a newspaper, and on the front page, there was this big picture of a house that had completely burnt down. And I, could, I remember them saying, can you believe it? Nobody was hurt. Nobody was home. It was the middle of the night, and nobody was home. 
Nobody was home and nobody was hurt. Even their dog somehow managed, along with the garage door, to be blown across the street and land in the neighbor's yard was unharmed. But the stuff, the stuff was gone. The toys, the appliances, the clothes, the baby pictures, the family heirlooms, everything gone. My mother-in-law talks about going to the site the next day and seeing the place where the fire originated and it was right next to where the boys' bunk beds were. She said it made her sick. I would meet my husband years later and I would ask him, what was it like to have your house explode and lose everything? And he said, I can only remember that I was really mad that my Halloween candy was in there. <laughs> he would, they would eventually move in with his grandparents that lived next door to his cousins, so he has no bad memories of any of it. My in-laws would tell you that they learned firsthand about the sovereignty and the providence of God. You see, my father-in-law had smelt gas earlier that week, and he had asked the gas company to come out, and they came out, and they said that everything was fine. <coughs> but everything was not fine. And so it just so happened that the family decided to go shop for furniture, and it just so happened that the store stayed late to help write up their, bill, their deal. It just so happened that my father-in-law got sick with something that he was dealing with regularly. It just so happened that they waited for the grandparents who lived 45 minutes away to come and get them. It just so happened that by the time she got them home, she looked back and all three of them were asleep. And it just so happened that it was raining. And that quick, she decided to change the plan and take them home with her. It was a chain of events of very ordinary things. Sleeping, raining, ulcers, shopping. And yet they were all so perfectly arranged so that his family was preserved. It was the sovereignty of God and it was not lost on them. My in-laws would tell you that it had a great impact on their spiritual lives. But here is the question. Would God have been any less sovereign or providential if the children had been in the house? Or the whole family for that matter. Is God any less providential or sovereign when bad things happen? How do you explain or how are we to understand the sovereignty and the providence of God in our lives? How, what is it exactly? And if there is such a thing, how then are we to live? This semester, we are going to be studying the very topic of the sovereignty and the providence of God. And full disclosure, this is going to be a difficult topic. And I say that knowing that we have discussed things like holiness and gender 
and submitting to our husbands. We have talked about difficult topics, and yet this could be the hardest one. Now, why do I say that? Well, because we are going to be learning things about God in this course that may not line up with your current views about God. And that may bother you. Now, here's the flip side. In many ways, this will be one of the easiest semesters that we have. Now, why do I say that? Well, because we're going to be studying the book of Esther. And Esther is a story. And she's not just a story, but it's a compelling story. It's a story that's filled with comedy and humor. It's filled with suspense. It's got political intrigue. It has these great characters. From a literary standpoint, it's compelling. It's one that you'll be able to understand. It's one that will hold your attention. So, like I said, in many ways, it will be an easy course for us to look at. Now, the book of Esther is what we called an Old Testament narrative. And so this morning, we want to do two things. We want to talk about how do you study and work with an Old Testament narrative, and we're going to be looking at the general ideas of that. And yet at the same time, we also want to look at some of the things that are unique to the book of Esther. All right, so two things, and it's basically going to be to help put this book in context and to give you some background. Now, I'm going to be throwing a lot of stuff at you this morning, but, you know, I just hang with me. Um, it's all going to come together at the end. So let's start out with some basics. How do you study an Old Testament narrative? Now, if you were with us last semester, we studied 1 Peter. And you might remember, we, we started out with that little fence, and we tried to determine the historical context and the purpose of the book. And we spent a lot of time talking about the, who the author was and who he was writing to. Now, when we study an Old Testament narrative, our approach is going to be a little different. We're still going to be trying to put, trying to understand the historical context. We're still going to want to know what the intent and the purpose of the author is. But we're going to spend a little more of our focus on things like plot and character and setting and action, things like that. All those things that you would ordinarily do if you were studying a story. Okay, so, um, we're going to take those uh, things into account when we're studying this. All right, also, with, with 1 Peter, it was originally written in Greek. All right, now Greek, uh, that's of the New Testament. And the, the, the Greek language is very precise, and it's what you call an abstract language. All right, so that means that we could take a sentence or a phrase and we could analyze it and we could stare at it like word for word and phrase for phrase. You, you know what it's like. You could, go to a you could go to a church service and a pastor might spend an entire sermon on one little phrase that he's pulled out of a New Testament passage. All right, now, we're not going to do that when we're studying an Old Testament narrative. The Old Testament narratives were written in Hebrew. Okay, and that's a different kind of language. It's what they call a concrete language. It's very picturesque. It's going to help paint a picture for you. It's not going to use a lot of adjectives, but instead it's going to paint a picture that just involves all five of your senses. 
Hebrew is known as the language of the senses. So our approach is going to be different. We're not going to be analyzing things sentence by sentence. Okay, in fact, and it brings us to our first point. First point on your handout says this, with an Old Testament narrative, the focus is on the whole literary unit. Okay, we're going to be looking at the whole story. We are not really going to be able to make good observations and good conclusions until we read the whole story. Okay, that's how this works. All right, number two on your paper. An Old Testament narrative is usually descriptive rather than prescriptive. All right, now what do I mean by that? Well, as we're reading, we're reading a story that is generally telling us what has happened as opposed to what should happen. Okay, like when we studied First Peter, he would give us a list of things that he was prescribing for us to do. We're not going to probably see that when we study an Old Testament narrative because it's a story. We're going to be reading about the things that the characters have done or failed to do. Okay, number three. An Old Testament narrative usually does not teach a doctrine directly, but will often illustrate a doctrine taught elsewhere. Again, if you were here for 1 Peter, his teaching was very direct. It was very explicit. He would say things like, wives, be submissive to your own husbands. He would see, say things like, um, do not fear, be hospitable. His teaching was very direct. Okay, It'll be different with the Old Testament narrative. Now, the neat thing is usually somewhere in the Old Testament, we're going to see the teaching of the New Testament. Okay, in other words, you're going to have those direct teachings of the New Testament, and they're going to be fleshed out or lived out for you somewhere in the Old Testament, or again, failed to be lived out. All right, now here's the thing. As moms and grandmas, as you are teaching your children the instruction, that explicit instruction from the New Testament, you want to be helping them to see it lived out in the old, in those Old Testament stories. Stories have a way of sticking with you. Okay, so you're going to find that that instruction is easier to remember if you've attached it to an Old Testament story. Okay, now here's our next thing. Number four, narratives are not written to address all of our theological questions. <clears throat> That's important to know. Each of the narratives, they are usually dealing with a specific issue, okay? So not all of your questions about God are going to be answered as we study the book of Esther, all right? Now, in the book of Esther, the sovereignty of God is going to be the central theme. And so that's, um, there's going to be some others, but that'll be the main focus. Okay, so there's going to be a lot of things that we don't, that we don't um, address. Now, a little side note, we're going to be taking some bunny trails as we go through the book because we have the luxury in that we're taking our time with this book. All right, now, when you're studying a narrative like the epistle, we want to put the book in its context and we want to determine what the author's intent was. Now, last semester, you might remember, we said that sometimes an author will come right out and tell us what his intent is. Um, especially with, if it's a letter. Now, in 
With the narrative, our approach is going to be different. Number five, next point. In narratives, the structure tends to revolve around things, around things like plot, setting, characters, and dialogue. We're going to be focusing on those things to determine what his intent is. Now, if you were to read some commentaries on the book of Esther, or let's say you were to get online and listen to some sermons about Esther, <clears throat> you're going to notice something very quickly. And that is that the book of Esther is very controversial. Okay? For a lot of reasons, she's very controversial. <clears throat> okay, you're going to have some people on this side of the camp, and they're going to teach that Esther is this wonderful, courageous, godly woman, and you should try to do everything you can to be like her. And then you're going to have this other side of the camp, and they're going to say, uh, sorry, but she ain't no Daniel. And they're going to say, uh, she's a floozy, and she was conniving, and she was manipulative. So when, when you're studying Esther, people are going to be all over the map. In fact, in your small groups, you may not agree. You may be all over the map in your, all, in your small groups. But that's okay, because here's our next point. Number six, God is the hero of every Old Testament narrative. If you want to understand the Old Testament narratives correctly, we need to understand this. God is the hero. God is the main character. God is the focus. Now, yes, there may be some minor plots, there might be some minor characters, but God is always the hero. He's always the main character. One of the first books <clears throat> that I ever taught to my peers was the book of Esther. And in the past, I always used to teach that she was the hero. And so we would study the book of Esther and look at all the ways and all the things that we should do to be like her. Well, one day, one of my classmates brought me this paper that she had, and it was written by some man who had a different viewpoint. And he was pointing out that maybe Esther wasn't quite the heroine that I was teaching her to be. And I dismissed her. It. I was like, I don't think so. <laughs> I need to apologize to her. I would love to be able to apologize to the whole class because I taught that Esther was the hero and she is not. God is always the hero of a New Testament story. He's always the main, um, the main character. Okay, in fact, one of, if, in fact, if there's nothing else that you go home with today, I want it to be that. God is always the hero of the Bible. In fact, one of the best ways that you can understand what God is like, one of the best ways that you can teach your children what God is like is to read to them those Old Testament narratives. And why is that? Because he's always the hero. And he's always the main character. Old Testament is teaching us what God is like. Okay. All right, now, with all that stuff in mind, now let's move and talk a little bit more about the specifics from the book of Esther. Okay, number one, 
author. Who wrote the book of Esther? Answer, we don't know. We don't know. We're not told. Now, Jewish tradition, they credit Mordecai. Some speculate that it was Ezra, Nehemiah. There's all different kinds of things. Bottom line, we don't know. Now, the writer, the author writes as if he is an eyewitness. That, that might give us some help. All right, number two, who were the original readers? Well, this book isn't like a New Testament letter to where it's directed to a certain group of people. So um, we don't know. But what we do know is that the original readers were Jewish and that the book would have been written to encourage them and give them hope. Now, why is that? Well, that brings us to the purpose of the book and the author's intent. And so next on your paper, number three, the immediate purpose of the book of Esther was to explain the origins and purpose of the Jewish celebration of Purim. That's P-U-R-I-M. And ensure it would be celebrated by future generations. Okay? That was a mouthful. All right, now some of you may be thinking, first of all, I don't know what Purim is. And second of all, I'm not Jewish, so I don't care. <laughs> I mean, I like a good story as much as the next person, but why should I study this book? Of all the books in the Bible, why have we chosen to study the one that's about Purim? Well, that's a fair question. So um, let's start by describing Purim, and to do that, we need to know the basic plot of the book. So here's how that goes. Some of you may already know it. The book of Esther tells the story of how a wicked man named Haman plotted to exterminate all the Jews. Now, we're not just talking about a little local attack. We're talking about a plan for a full-blown mass extermination. But then God intervened and used a young orphaned Jewish girl to save and preserve them. That's the plot in a nutshell, okay? And it helps us to understand what Purim is. I have this on your book, in your handout. It is a definition for Purim. Purim is a Jewish festival that commemorates the Jews being delivered from their wicked enemies. Okay, at the risk of sounding really cold-hearted, why should I care about that? Why should I study about that? I mean, this is 2017. We're living in Charlotte, North Carolina. We have problems of our own. What difference does it make that the Jews were delivered from their enemies in 479 BC? Why would Gentiles care about this, care about Purim? Another good question. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Okay, Genesis chapter 3, we're talking about the first book in your Bible. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 3, we're going to look at verse 14. This is going to be familiar. I don't think we have had a single semester where we have not at some point looked at this verse. So here we go. Genesis chapter 3, 14, it's taking place in the Garden of Eden. And immediately after that first sin, it goes like this, 3.14, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, 
Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. All right, verse 15. We've talked about this. We have called that before that big fancy word. We've said it's the proto-evangelion. This is the first mention of the gospel in the Bible. It's the first mention of a savior. Okay, it's the first mention of a snake crusher. Okay, now uh, you might want to put a star by, by this verse, and here's why. Sometimes pastors will refer to this verse as the Bible in a nutshell, because everything else in the Bible is going to be a fulfilling and a playing out of this verse. Okay, now I want you to notice verse 14. God, he's speaking to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you. All right, enmity, that, that means hatred, right? That's hostility. He says, I'm going to put enmity between you and your seed and between the seed and between the woman and her seed. Okay, we see two kingdoms here, don't we? We've got the, the seed of the serpent, that's representing one seed, and the seed of the woman and her seed, that represents another kingdom. And they're going to be in conflict. There's going to be hatred and hostility between the two. Are the kingdoms equal? Are they? No. They're very lopsided, aren't they? You're going to see one kingdom biting at the heels of one, and the other kingdom is going to be crushing the head of the other. All right, now, why are we talking about this today? What does it have to do with the book of Esther? Well, because the book of Esther is the playing out of this verse. We're going to see the two kingdoms going at it. We're going to see the kingdom of the serpent trying to exterminate the seed of the woman, the children of God. And we're going to see God intervening to protect and preserve them and have control over all of it. All right, here's our next point. Brings us to our next point. Number four, the greater purpose of the book of Esther is to show the providence of God in history to promote his purposes and preserve his people. Okay, so yes, the book is about Purim, but the greater message of Esther is about the sovereignty of God and how he is working out his promises and he is in total control of it all. I wonder if there's anybody here that would like to study a book about that. Okay, that's the start of the plot. That's the start of the purpose of the book. Let's talk a little bit about the setting. Let's talk about when it takes place and where it takes place and why any of that is significant. So to do that, I want you to turn to the book of Esther. All right, now Esther's a little tricky to find. It's going to be Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and Job. So it comes before Job. If you get to uh, Psalms, you've gone too far, go back. But find your place because this is where you're going to be for the next seven weeks. All right, here we go. Esther chapter 1, verse 1. 
Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, that Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. All right, that's going to answer some questions right there. The setting, where does the story take place? Answer, in Susa. Now, that is a primary city in the Persian Empire. This was the winter residence of the Persian kings. Very likely, Daniel and Nehemiah were both at this palace during their times. Okay. It is known now as modern-day Iran. So that's where this story is taking place. Number six, when does the story take place? Well, it tells us in the days of King Ahasuerus. That is approximately his reign was between 486 B.C., and 465 BC. Now, let's talk a little bit about him. Ahasuerus is the name that the Jews had for this king, and it's more likely a title than his actual name. Most believe that he is the same guy that secular historians call Xerxes, okay? Xerxes, if he is that guy, then history has much to say about him. And he is recorded in poetry. There is poetry about him. There are operas about him and even video games. So Herodotus, and I have this on your paper as well, he was a Greek historian that lived several years after him. And he perhaps had the most to say about Herodotus. He writes and he was a secular historian, he writes that Xerxes was impatient and known for his fits of rage. He was known for his lavish drinking parties and his great sexual appetite. And what's, we're probably going to come to a very similar conclusion when we read the Bible account of him as well. Okay, now, a couple famous stories that Herodotus tells. And one of them is the story of um, Xerxes, going on his way to invade Greece. And he has his men build this great bridge. Well, there is a storm and the bridge collapses. Well, Xerxes is furious. So he has the architects beheaded and then he has his men beat the water 300 lashes then, and throw chains into the water so as to prove and signify that he has enslaved the river. Now, perhaps the most famous story that Herodotus tells is of Xerxes on his way to Greece again, and along the way he meets up with the king of Lydia, and his name is Pythias. Now, Pythias hosts King Xerxes and his army. He's very generous. He's very lavish. He has five sons, and those five sons are either given to Xerxes or conscripted into Xerxes' army. Now, Pythias, uh, he comes to Xerxes and he asks, can my oldest son be excused? Can he stay home with me and take care of me in my old age? Well, Xerxes, he interprets that to mean that Pythias doubts his military chances of success. And so Xerxes is furious. 
He's enraged. He takes that oldest son out of the ranks, has him cut in two, has the body pieces laid on the road, and the army marches over him. He then takes a piece of the body, hands it to the father, and says, here is your son. Yes, he can stay home with you. Uh, not a nice guy. The secular history provides a number of very unflattering stories about him. Now, there is one thing we need to consider. The historian was Greek. Xerxes is, is Persian. Xerxes was invading his country. That could account for some of the bad press because it's it may have some type of bias. We may want to factor that in. Okay, but that leads us to our next question. Here's where I'm going with all that. Why is this story taking place in Persia? Why is it taking place in Susa? I mean, if this is a story about the Jewish people, if this is a story about God's covenant people, why are they in Persia? Okay, and that, the date that we're given at the beginning of the book is going to help us with that. It's going to help us put this into its context. The Bible tells us, if you read your Bible history, it tells us that about a hundred years earlier, as discipline for their sin, the Jews, they've been carried off by the Babylonians. All right? And, and that first deportation takes... The deportation takes place in stages, but the very first one starts about 605 B.C. Now, that's significant because not only had God prophesied that they would be carried off, but he said that they would be in captivity for 70 years, and that after 70 years, they would be allowed to return and go back to their homeland. And so, as uh, you might expect, God uh, answers and works on all that. He allows the Babylonians to be overthrown by the Medo-Persians. And they had a king by the name of Cyrus. And that king made a law that said that the Jews could return to their home and rebuild their temple. Okay, now the story of Esther, it takes place about 50 years after that decree by King Cyrus. All right, now some of you may be familiar with the book of Ezra. All right, in the book of Ezra, it tells the story about a group of Jews that leave Persia to make the long trek home and go to Israel and rebuild their temple, okay? Be just like Cyrus said they could do. All right, here's your next point on your paper. Number seven, chronologically, the book of Esther takes place between chapters six and seven of the book of Ezra. Okay, first six chapters of Ezra, they tell us that there were about 50,000 Jews that left Persia to return home to the land of Israel. Now, now that may sound like a lot, but um, it's actually a very small percentage of the Jews in comparison to those that stayed behind. The majority of the Jews stayed in Persia. Okay, now here's the thing. When you understand the historical setting of Esther, that raises a very big question about the Jews that are still in Persia. It raises the question, why are you still there? Why have you not traveled 
back to your homeland and helped rebuild the temple and go to the temple? Why have you stayed in a pagan land? Why are you not pursuing God and going back to your homeland? Were you too poor to make the trip? Or maybe you became too successful in Persia and you have a really good job and you don't want to leave it. Did the kids like it? Were the kids settled in Persia? Was it too hard that you didn't want to uproot them and take them back to a strange land? Had you become so comfortable with the Persian culture that you just really didn't see it as a need? You see, when people consider the people in the book of Esther, there's a lot of speculation about their spiritual condition. Most of the time they are accused of being people that have compromised and have become uh, just so comfortable and living lives in such a way that they're just blending in with the culture. Some of them, most of the time, they are accused of being in a very backslidden condition. I wonder if um, there's anyone here that can identify with that. Here's the next point on our paper, number eight. The name of God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. The name of God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. The king's name is going to be mentioned 190 times. But God's name is never mentioned. The temple, the law, prayer, none of that is going to be mentioned. You're not going to read things like, thus saith the Lord because his name is not mentioned. Now that's by design. That's something the, the author is purposely doing. In the book of Esther, it is going to appear as if no one is thinking about God. For the most part, people are just going about their own lives, doing their own things as if there is no God. He's not going to even be on their radar. Does that sound familiar? Does that describe you? Or possibly, it's the flip side. Maybe you are going through something really difficult and you're going through a hard time and you find yourself thinking, God, where are you? Are you out there? That brings us to our next point. It is a Karen Jobes quote. She has a very good commentary on this book. She writes this, number nine, the book of Esther invites its readers to ponder the nature of faith in a world where God is unseen. In the book of Esther, God is not mentioned, he is not seen, and yet he's on every page. He's working in the shadows. We're not going to see any miracles in this story. Instead, we're going to see him use very ordinary means. In fact, he's going to use very questionable means. There are things in this book that get very messy because the main characters do some very questionable stuff. There are going to be times when you read this book and you're going to ask, uh, should I be reading this one to the kids? Just a little warning, this book is R-rated. Okay, and that brings us to our next point, number 10. The characters are complex and flawed. 
complex and flawed, the hero is God. Okay, now there's one other thing that I want us to see to help us prepare you for this study, and it is going to mean going to Genesis 38. So if you would turn with me to Genesis 38, back again there. This is the story of Tamar, who marries one of the sons of Judah. This is a strange story, okay? But I want to use it because it's going to help us show something that is going to be helpful. Okay, Genesis chapter 38, I'm going to start with verse 6. It says this, Now Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, Go in to your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offering for offspring for your brother. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. Okay. This passage could use some explaining, which we're not going to take the time to do today. <laughs> but here's, here's why I want you to see it, because I want you to see the different writing styles. All right, this Moses, he's writing this, and as he's writing, he's giving moral commentary. He's making moral explanations as he go. He says, hey, this guy Onan, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He was supposed to raise up offspring. He was supposed to sleep with that woman so that she would have offspring, but he didn't do that. He was evil in the sight of the Lord. Oh, he enjoyed the sex. He slept with the woman, but he wasted his seed. Okay? And see, and see Moses, he's explaining all that. He's pointing out the sin. He's pointing out the evil. And he's telling us what they're thinking and what their intentions are. Now, when we get to the book of Esther, the author doesn't do that. The author is never going to interject moral commentary. He's not going to interject moral explanations for anything. No, all we are going to do is see the action played out and view some dialogue. And the author is very, purpose, very purposeful in doing that. But here's the thing. Isn't that often the way life is? I don't know what you're thinking. I don't know what your intentions are. I don't know why you do the things that you do. I don't know why you let your child do this, but you don't let your child do that. I don't know how much you know about God. I don't know what God's teaching you. You see, the book of Esther is going to reflect that as we study. All right, here's our next point. It's another Karen Job quote. She writes this, number 11. The author skillfully describes a morally ambiguous and complex situation because that is the way real life often is in this fallen world. You know, some things in life are very clear-cut, but some things are very complicated. People are complicated. Life gets messy. Calvin and Luther, they famously did not like the book of Esther. They didn't like dealing with it. And do you know why? Because the actions of the characters can be very ambiguous and complex. In the book of Esther, nobody is going to be quoting their Bibles. 
Nobody is going to be offering sacrifices or worship or, or doing anything that you might expect a good Jewish person to do. And yet, God will still preserve them. The people are going to act as if they have forgotten God, or at the very least that God is not a priority in their lives, and yet he will still work in their, on their behalf. You see, this is a book about the sovereignty and the faithfulness of God. This is a book about how God keeps his promise even when his people are unfaithful. This is a book about the power and the faithfulness and the kindness of God, of a God who is always at work and always in control of it all. I wonder if there's anybody that would like to study a book like that. Here's our last point. Esther reminds us that no matter how hopeless the situation or unfaithful the people, God is actively reigning above and ruling below. Would you pray with me? Oh, dear, dear Lord, I, I can't think of a more perfect time for a study on the sovereignty and providence of God. I praise you that you have brought us to it. Oh, Father, my heart is that these women will take, go home this week and open that first chapter and just hear your voice and be wowed by you. And Lord, we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the snake crusher, we pray. Amen.